certainly a blessing that we have as God's children to gather and to offer our praise and our worship and to open his word that we may learn more of his will for our lives. As, as it has been stated, Romans 7 is our study for this evening. I want to begin by reading the first 14, chap, uh, 14 verses. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. This, um, these beginning verses here says that I, that I speak, brethren, to those who know the law. And it seems apparent to me in studying this that he is specifically addressing Hebrew Christians and possibly Gentile Christians that have been influenced to believe that they might have to hold on to the old law somehow. But I believe it's primarily addressing people that are having trouble giving up the law. Well, the one thing that I found particularly interesting here in these verses is I've never struggled with the concept that we need to somehow hold on to the law. That never was a res revelation to me. It's something that I've I guess I was always taught it's something that's easy for me to understand, but there are people even today 
that struggle with that. And that's the application that we have here, even though he, made, he was talking to a specific group. And then what I find interesting is we often talk about the law being nailed to the cross. And I haven't thought a lot about the way he phrases it here in, in Romans 7, and that is, as Jews who have become Christians, you have died to the law. And then he begins to draw the analogy of marriage. I think that's partly because it's fairly simple to understand, but also because how we as the church are referred to as the bride of Christ. And so it makes a very good analogy whenever he goes through and he says, um, you know, he's already said we've died to sin, and now he's starting to explain this union with Jesus. And there is not a good distance with my glasses here. I'm sorry, y'all. Um, he, he begins to explain that we have a new life in Christ, and that is through Christ that we died to the, or the Jews died to the old law, and now... That death brings about a change in legal status, just as it does in marriage. If you are married, it says, and a woman marries another man, then she's an adulteress. But if her husband died and then she marries another, then she is free from that law. And that is how he goes about making the argument here in Romans that you have died to the law, and now you're free to be bound to another. He says that they are released from that law and you, a new, for, a new union can be formed. He said in verse 4, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. And Paul's point here is that Jesus' death breaks a person's bond with the law, or a Jewish person's law with the law in particular. Again, the application for us today is not to go back and hold on to something that we were never bound to and try to bring that in to our, our service as Christians. The Jewish believers died to that law through Christ, and now their allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Jesus was born under the law, and he said that I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And in his perfect life, he fulfilled that. He fulfilled the entirety of the law, the thing that no man could do but him. And by his death and resurrection, all mankind has escaped the obligations of those written oracles, or those uh, written laws. So when we see people have false ideas about the Sabbath or the seventh day and when the proper time to worship is, we're not bound to that. It no longer applies to us. We're supposed to avoid sin, but sin itself is no longer defined to us as Christians by the law of Moses. We can gain a great understanding of the mind of God in reading the old law. But rather, sin is defined by the character of Christ 
And we are to daily grow and grow closer to him and work each day of our lives to emulate him and to live as he would have us to do. We belong to him who was raised from the dead and we are to bear fruit for God. And that is how we serve him. Paul says in verse 5 that we were in the realm of flesh. The sinful passions aroused by the law are at work in us. We begin through the law, the Jews in particular, to understand what sin is. And he said, he said that it bore fruit for death. Before Christ, everyone was dominated by the weakness of the flesh. And our sinful desires brought about death instead of bearing fruit for God. But with our life in Christ, with Jesus Christ, his life and his death, his sacrifice and his resurrection, we are to no longer be controlled by the flesh. And that's going to be addressed in more detail later. But that is the idea here, that we're not to be controlled by the flesh. Paul said that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. I think that points again to the weakness of the flesh in that when we are given a rule, our flesh, not any rule, it's one may apply to you and something, people have different weaknesses. But whenever we have a rule and our flesh wants to do that, then it begins to manifest in a type of rebellion. That's part of the weakness, the frailty of our flesh. Our flesh. In verse 6 he said, But now by dying to what once bound us, again, his description of dying to the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way, and that is through the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law that was once binding, all humanity has been released from that, the Jews and Gentiles who were never actually regulated by that. Instead of serving God according to the law, we are to, to, to serve through the Holy Spirit and being led by him and the words of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes into much greater detail on that in the following chapter, in chapter 8. In verse 7 he says, What then is the law sinful? Is the law somehow to cause what causes our desire for sin? And he says, certainly not. I would not have known that sin, what sin was, if it weren't for the law. The, revolt, the law reveals what sin is, and that, in the weakness of our flesh as humans, can be dangerous knowledge for us, again, in particular areas where we have the tendency to rebel against those things. And he illustrates this by talking about covetousness. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. 
And I thought that was an interesting way that it expressed it in verse 8. I'm sorry, I'm really having trouble reading my notes, so I'm having to search a little here. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. So he's making the argument here very strongly for the weak, about the weakness of the flesh, and I believe building up to our absolute need for Jesus Christ. Because it, we've set, said it, we've been taught it over and over again, if you were guilty in one instant, in one point of the law, you were guilty of all. Paul also says that by defining the law, or that the law defining sin told his nature how to sin. It, it, it defined what sin is. It defined what is wrong. And so in his rebellion against, or in the humans in general, our, our flesh often rebels against certain points of, of what is right, and then we want to violate it. If we are given a rule, then the flesh, to assert its independence, often wants to break that rule or that law. Is Paul talking about himself, or is he giving a general principle? He's defining this, talking about this in the first person, and I believe absolutely he's talking about the struggle that is common to all humanity. We have seen in the Old Testament, we've seen weaknesses of Abraham. We've seen who was a friend of God. We've seen terrible sins and crimes committed by David, who was a man after God's own heart. We see the zeal of Paul and how he might get carried away in his attempt to serve uh, Jesus and to follow him and be a little rash, but we really do not have any of those stories about Paul, and so we tend to think of him as being content, as he said, in all things, willingly suffering, and I believe he did. That The Bible does not give us false information about that. But I believe that he is describing the, the struggle that every Christian has and that is, we have certain weaknesses, certain difficulties, certain things that will influence you more than me, things that will in, in, for bad, things that will influence me towards evil more than you. And it's a common struggle that he's talking about, and, and he's bringing all this up to the point of the need, absolute need that we must depend on Jesus. Again, in verse, eight, in verse 10, he said, I found the very commandment that intended to bring life actually brought death. And he, he goes about to show that the weakness or the weakness of man in keeping the law. And it appears to have plain, plainly make the case that the law defined God's character, 
defined his expectations, pointed us to right, and pointed at, told us what was wrong. But it did not save. The law does not take us, cause us itself to make a wrong turn. It just tells us what is wrong and what is right. It is our flesh and our sinful nature of being in the flesh that causes us to often choose the pathway towards death. So Paul concludes in verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandments are holy. They are holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy, but it does not make man holy. Were animal sacrifices a good thing? Yes, because God gave them. But that does not mean that they are required today. People that want to hold on to the old law in general and that call themselves Christians, that's not something they practice. If we want to keep the old law, we must keep it as a whole. And it's been pointed out over and over and over throughout the Word of God that that's not something that man can do perfectly and thus the need for a Savior. Paul asked in verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? Did the, did the law cause my death? Certainly not. A criminal cannot blame the law for their crimes. And we talk about sin and we talk about shortcomings and we talk about failures. But when we sin, we commit a crime against God. The law tells us whether what we have done is right or wrong and the consequences of doing what's wrong. And so, in verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So what happens? It help us, helps us to understand the, not only what sin is, but how terrible it is in the sight of God. All right, I'd like to read beginning in 15 through the rest of the chapter. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do, I do not, but the evil I will not do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills, to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind 
in bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I'm not sure how old I was, probably 10 or 12 years old, the first time I ever remember hearing this portion of this chapter talked on, and it made no sense to me. I mean, it was read pretty fast, and, but I remember it, and it took me a long time to understand it. But I believe I understand it now, and I think most of us do. This is a real struggle. David talked to us about this today. You can take this struggle that he's talking about, that I want to do what's right. I want to do, I, I, I love God's word, and I want to serve him, and then I don't do it. And I hate sin. I don't want to do it, and then I do it. I think you can take, take this struggle and book in David's lesson this morning at the front and at the end, and you have the answer. The things that he talked about kind of blew up a lot of what I was going to say this evening. But that's okay. Because I want to point out, in particular, something, two things that he pointed out. What would our life be if we did not take God's word and look at the things in life, look at the struggles we have, the, the things we're inundated with in our society, and if we did not look at these situations through the lens of the Bible, if that was not part of our mindset, who would you be? Who would I be? I know a lot of things that I might be, and it's nothing to be proud of, but if I did not care about God's word and I did not try to live my life regulated by God's word, there would be evil in my life that I can't even contemplate. So what we need to re realize as we approach the struggle of the flesh against the spirit is that the struggle is real. The struggle is real. And we must daily look at the Bible Look through the lens of the Bible about the things going on in our life, the things that we're a part of, the things that we see, the things that are accepted around us, and regulate our response and our actions by the Word of God. Without it, we're doomed. Jesus has died for us. That sacrifice is there. But if we do not seek God's Word, if we do not seek it, if we do not diligently look to conform our lives to it, then we're doomed. Because, as I said earlier, our lives are to be, and how we live are to be defined by the character of, God, of Jesus. His perfect example, the example he left, the footsteps that we seek to walk in. And that needs to be our goal. We need to understand that our flesh is weak, and the Bible tells us, warns us, we can think we're doing good and we're not. Take heed that you stand, lest you fall. If you have any tendency towards a struggle to be aware of your own shortcomings, find somebody that will tell you the truth and help you. Engage the struggle. This, 
the last part of this verse, this chapter, it's just saying, the things I want to do to serve God, I fail to do them. The things I hate because I know they're important to God, I do them. Have you ever felt like you couldn't pray to God because you just disgusted him? Remember in the Old Testament where he said, I'm sick of your sacrifices. They stink in my nostrils. Have you ever felt that way? Seek him. Remember, as a, all of you who are parents, how you love your children no matter their age. How you, how, how you do anything for them. God sent his son and his love is far greater for us than anything that we can really as humans wrap our mind around. He sent his son because he is seeking us. He wants us to be reconciled, redeemed, and to live eternity in heaven. And this chapter talks about the fact that there is, we're not under the law, that we have this great struggle, and we need Jesus. And that's ultimately the things that I got out of this chapter. The struggle's real. We must engage it. We must remember, as was stated again by David, quoting D, we are saints who sometimes fail. And we need to be aware of our failures, our sins, our crimes against God, and repent and go to God's word and engage the struggle daily. That is all the comments I have this evening. If there is one who has been sufficiently taught and would like to obey the Lord in baptism and to make that confession that Jesus is the Son of God and to be buried with him in baptism and arise and walk a new life, we invite you to come. If there is someone who would be helped or comforted by the prayers of our brothers and sisters here, we invite you to come as we sing the song selected.